AMU. American Military University is proud to present the following podcast on behalf of In Homeland Security. Well, welcome everyone. My name is Dr. Elise Carlson Rayner. I'm an assistant professor of international relations with the School of Security and Global Studies. I have the distinct pleasure and honor to introduce Ambassador Deborah Jones here today, who has a renowned career in foreign affairs. Her final assignment in the senior foreign service was as the U.S. ambassador to Libya, appointed by President Obama in March 2013. And again, for context, she stepped into this role in Libya after the tragic death of Ambassador Chris Stevens. Prior to Libya, she had distinguished academic appointments and served as the scholar in residence in the Middle East Institute and also the senior faculty advisor for the National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. Ambassador Jones also served as ambassador to Kuwait from 2008 to 2011 and has served in numerous posts, including Argentina, Iraq, Tunisia, Syria, and Ethiopia. I worked with Ambassador Jones in Kuwait in 2008, and we worked on such things as trafficking in persons, labor issues in the Gulf, and Kuwait's elections. And at the time, it was the first time that women ran for office in elections in Kuwait. So it's my honor and pleasure to welcome you here today. Ambassador Jones, and welcome. Thank you, Elise. It's nice to be here with you. Well, why don't we start it off? I think a question that people have that is so compelling, your entire you know, amazing background in, in foreign affairs is, is really compelling, but the most difficult, you know, just to kind of get a sense to describe what it was like to come onto the scene in Libya after Ambassador Chris Stevens had been killed. And what does it really take? How, how do you assume kind of that leadership position in a crisis? Well, it was, um, it was a big difference from serving in Libya as opposed to serving in Kuwait, obviously. What I, when I arrived on the scene, and of course I had prepared quite a bit for that. I had gone through, in particular, the Accountability Review Board studies that that they were confidential, but it was the review of what had happened in Benghazi, what had led to Benghazi, and uh, what had transpired that evening. And it helped me understand, frankly, the trauma uh, I had of the team that I inherited. This was a group of people who were very uh, devoted officers and uh, staff at the embassy who had, frankly, been very traumatized by what had happened. And also by the, not only by the events themselves, which of course had transpired in Benghazi, not in Tripoli where Mm -hmm. most of them were at the time. And, you know, just to describe it for people, it was a pretty terrible night for them as well, because I think what people forget is that there was not a lot of security at Embassy Tripoli either that night. The mission facility in Benghazi because it was not a U.S. consulate, official consulate, it was a, a facility, a temporary facility, which therefore had an impact on the funding for security and other things, which a lot of people don't realize that that was, that was some of the problem. But Chris and Sean Smith and two others died in the fighting that night and in the attack on the, on the facility. But in the meantime, those people in Tripoli were told to quickly pack their things the flight came back from Benghazi and basically swooped them up, 
brought them home with their things and with the four bodies of their four dead colleagues mm-hmm. in a real nightmare scenario and brought them home. And many of them then went back to serve at post. And I spent a lot of time the first few months there giving them an opportunity to talk to talk about what had happened, to explain their feelings about it, that it then limited their abilities to engage with Libyans. Um, For others, they didn't feel that they had worked out a lot of their emotions until the night before we evacuated the fall in 2014 when they were able to actually smash equipment and Mm -hmm. burn equipment, and they felt that that was very cathartic for them. So when I went in, my, my task was to energize them to the mission, but mostly to hear them out at first and to just let them talk about what had happened to them. It was a different scenario, too. When I, when I got there, of course, there had been people filling in temporarily. But a mission, it's, it's very important to have an ambassador at a mission, someone who really is in the role of chief of mission. Um, in the case there, we had a lot of inexperienced younger officers, too, which... Unfortunately, it often happens in some of those kinds of posts because the missions aren't large enough to have more senior officers. It's kind of one of those anomalies. And the gap between the ambassador in terms of rank and then the next in line was by a factor of several ranks. My deputy was not a senior foreign service officer. He was an extremely brave, extremely courageous young man who had, in fact, been in Benghazi the night before Chris arrived and had flown out, in fact, on the plane that Chris had flown in on. And I think um, performed very well, but struggled with some guilt, you know, survivor's guilt, Mm -hmm. that people go through that. But it was important to establish what our mission was collectively, to talk to them about what we were in Libya trying to do, to have a frank talk about security. Of course, the circumstances had changed. When I arrived, we had, you know, some a total of 87 or so combat Marines who were mm-hmm. around the parameters of the building. But to continue the work on the offices and to continue the work that we were doing as a team, to let them know that they were going to be heard and that their concerns were going to be heard, but that I also had expectations that they would do their work. And I also offered them, I did offer everyone who was there the opportunity to go home if they wanted to curtail mm-hmm. without any kind of problem for their careers. And in fact, people wanted to stay. They wanted to finish the task. I think that's typical of the State Department. People mm-hmm. who are in that business are in that business because they want to serve. They'd had to pack quickly. they travel with dead colleagues and then kind of turn right around and not have really any time to grieve or to work through what had happened because, in fact, they didn't really know what had happened because of the manner in which that whole thing was handled, which was unfortunate in many ways. It was bad things happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Chris Stevens, I think, would have been shattered had he known that people would lose their lives Mm -hmm. over what he felt was a very important mission. It's just a shame. I mean, and it's a curious thing, too. I'm going to editorialize here a little bit, but it's interesting that people don't understand the workings of the State Department and they don't understand the hierarchies within and the fact that an ambassador in-country on the ground is a four-star equivalent and is indeed the chief of mission and and does get to call the shots in terms of operations and other things. And Chris made a decision. He felt it was important to go to Benghazi to continue the work that he had been involved with there before. 
Many people, people in Washington, some of them also believed it was very important to have a U.S. presence there because that is, after all, where the revolution had begun and where they still had a number of young revolutionaries who were there because I think people don't realize uh, the role of the ambassador. And there were so many myths around what happened that night. And, you know, I, I think perhaps in part because people have what I call a cinematographic or a Hollywood idea of how things operate in the world of time and space. I mean, for someone really to imagine that a plane could have come, you know, within mm-hmm. the 15, 20 minutes of, of the time from the time the attack began on the uh, facility to the time that Chris Stevens died, because mm-hmm. he died of smoke inhalation. Yeah. And uh, so did so did Sean Smith. And the reason they died of smoke inhalation was because there was diesel fuel. There were diesel fuel cans at the, on the facility that were left after the installation of a new generator and had been left out. And when the people who were looting found the diesel fuel, they lit it. Hmm. And, and, you know, they did what Libyans have historically done, which is to loot and burn. So Chris was probably asphyxiated within 20 to 30 minutes with that black. Because, again, too, people forget how flammable materials are Mm -hmm. in furniture and things, especially those that are made in outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. forget how many people died from smoking in bed in the United States (laughs) when furniture caught fire. I'm not trying to minimize it, but the fact is that 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 is a factor. And this was the reality. And for someone to assume that a plane could have been dispatched from, Mm. you know, a base in Italy or Spain somehow made it there in five minutes because that's what happens in the movies and uh, sent a team. I mean, that's just kind of absurd. It was a tragedy. It was a terrible tragedy, Mm. a terrible loss of four men who were courageous and dedicated and um, very brave guys in a terrible Mm -hmm. incident. Mm -hmm. We are going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Working in homeland security requires versatile experts to handle domestic and international security issues. A homeland security degree at American Military University offers you the chance to improve your expertise and develop practical knowledge for combating terrorism and security threats to our nation. Learn from experienced leaders in homeland security. Apply today at amuonline.com. Welcome back. More with Ambassador Deborah Jones. You served in leadership positions all over the world, and whether Libya in crisis or Kuwait or in Istanbul, can you describe your your thinking process and, and your kind of leadership role of how you set strategic priorities? You know, in what many people don't realize is obviously the United States has a national security strategy. And for each country, particularly when you're a chief of mission, when you go out as an ambassador, you are given a letter of instruction from the president of the United States. And in that letter, it actually goes through a series of priorities for the mission, you know, and for the place you are in terms of American objectives, whether they relate to national security, counterterrorism, trade, energy, whatever it might be. I mean, in Kuwait, for example, our focus was on our maintaining our security relationship because we have bases there that, particularly Camp Arif John, that supports a lot of our operations in the region. Also, the flows of hydrocarbons that are so important, but also Kuwaiti investment. We mm-hmm. have significant Kuwaiti investment in the United States, and so that's important to us as well. And we have, you know, a lot of export markets. And then we have the human rights issues, and we have the labor issues that you and I worked on, and, mm-hmm. and so some of those that are also important. In the case of Libya, what made it unique was that we were literally building the country up. I mean, rebuilding or looking to 
put Humpty Dumpty back together again, as some people would say. And we actually sat down as a country team, I mean, with the, with the overall objective of supporting the UN mission, obviously, in its role to build a structure or, or help Libya build a government of national accord. But we also, we sat down and we talked about what are the various components of the mission, the various elements that were there, what we were going to try to do to um, what our goals were for that period. And in fact, you know, the first six months that I was on the ground in Libya, we signed a number of agreements with the government that was in place and took the approach, if we build it, they will come. (laughs) So in general, in these places, so as I say, I'm not having to invent the wheel. It's sometimes a matter of approach, who we're going to identify and which area we're going to emphasize and in what order. Obviously, in Istanbul, it was a very different situation where, in fact, we were focused on our public affairs a lot there and and commercial outreach, but mostly, you know, a lot of public affairs and drug enforcement, of mm. all things, because um, most of the narcotics that enter Europe come across the two bridges in Istanbul now, three, but the two at the time. So again, a lot of your priorities are, are already there because they're ongoing priorities. Um, it's really a matter of nuance and, and deciding what you're going to emphasize, who you're going to reach, how you're going to approach it, are you, what you're public diplomacy stance is going to be. In Libya, for example, because we couldn't travel throughout the country, we, we tried to travel when we could so that we showed that we were there. I opened a Twitter account because Libya was very plugged in. So using that sort of social media, we were able to reach, I think my Twitter account still has over 205,000 followers. Wow. It's significant because mm-hmm. that's what Libyans wanted to hear. And that was mm-hmm. the only way to be in touch. Mm-hmm. And they, it was pretty vociferous sometimes, you know, and, and uh, I learned also not to let staff tweet on my behalf mm-hmm. <laughs> because you really have to own your own messages um, yeah. because it can yeah. lead to a lot of problems. And and then as important, not as important, but equally important was the well-being of the staff, trying to make it more possible for them to get off the compound, trying to work with our security people to give them opportunities to interact with Libyans and not feel so isolated because that was also very hard for them, where they'd been able to openly interact with Libyans before Benghazi, mm. and suddenly they were cut off. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard. And so we, what we did develop was plans to actually bring Libyans more often to the compound. If we couldn't go to the bring mountain, them in. yeah, exactly, yeah. we'd yeah. bring it uh, back to ourselves. So it was more tactical. Mm-hmm. I think the strategies were there, but it was more tactical mm-hmm. how we were going to approach that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. A lot of diplomatic work is, is behind the scenes and it doesn't make the news. In some ways, right. when it makes the news, it's a failure right. of diplomacy. And so can you give an example for the audience of, of just kind of an especially tough or tense diplomatic engagement that's not you know, necessarily public or just to give a sense of what this really looks like in in practicality? Oof. Well, I mean, thanks to WikiLeaks, a lot of our exchanges are actually in (laughs) public. Not so behind the scenes anymore. Not so behind the scenes. I was going to say, um, when I was in Kuwait, one of the most difficult subjects we had was the Guantanamo detainees who were Kuwaitis, which created a real problem for the ruler and members of the government because it's a small place and people know each other and people knew these guys growing up and it was a matter of national pride and for the Kuwaitis to have these guys returned even though there had been at least in one case allegations that one of the Gitmo 
detainees who'd been returned previously had then subsequently detonated himself in Iraq in a police station. So, you know, I had very interesting exchanges with the then Minister of Interior on that, trying to find a way to both save face for the emir, who's an important ally of ours, but also to address our concerns and negotiate a path where we could eventually return them. And in this case, they agreed on the the conditions of a facility and the terms around it. When you ask about a tense situation, Mm -hmm. obviously in Libya, before we engaged in capture or kill operations, usually capture, but I would, in fact, clear the operation in very broad terms. I mean, at least inform one person in the government, Mm -hmm. usually at the senior most level, Mm -hmm. that he should not be surprised and to give him a chance to object fully, but that we were going to probably have something at some point Mm -hmm. to capture someone. And in in this case, this was a Libby who had been implicated in the bombings in Nairobi. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, obviously our the team had been there and planning and doing many things. In the, in the moment of the actual operation, for some reason, there was a CCTV camera in this guy's house, and they captured the actual abduction by wow. our team <laughs> on camera. And the family very savvily had called, contacted the New York Times. Mm. So before the fellow was even exfiltrated, he was still in, you know, as far as I knew, I mean, I knew what the plan was to exfiltrate him out, but I was summoned by the prime minister to his office and the his head of intelligence, who was not privy, I think, to any of this, came in and and they both questioned me intensively about what was going on and who was this and how and and where was he i mean and that was i always remember the question so where is he now hmm. and my answer was he is en route to the united states hmm. because as i would always tell my children in our business there is you can be perfectly honest without being completely honest <laughs> and the fact is that wherever he was in Libya at the time, still he was en route to the United States. Somewhere towards the U.S. So these things are dicey sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, how you negotiate that. But there are ways. You know, obviously, there are issues that people don't want to hear. And one of those is on the human rights side. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a particularly touchy subject. The Kuwaitis were extremely unhappy with our approaches on that. And felt that we were not seeing the whole picture and that they had, in fact, prepared. I don't know if you remember this, at least they had prepared their own counter human rights report, human rights report or propaganda almost. But they made a film. Kuwaitis had made a film where they interviewed a number of third country nationals who were working in Kuwait who said, look, if I were still in India, I would be making nothing Hmm. compared to what I make now. And I would still have to pay my rent and buy food. So this way, by living in Kuwait and working here, I get housing, I get food, and I'm able to send money to my family. And this was the Kuwaiti, you know, this was their approach on it. Sure. And, I, and yeah. I also think that there was another, you know, there was another issue for them clearly was that women's work is devalued anyway, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. so what these Kuwaiti women were doing was hiring someone to do the work that they didn't want to do, which right. is what happens in a lot of places, right. you know, where women's work is unpaid. That was never a pleasant exchange. People didn't like hearing that. Of course, they didn't like, 
you know, hearing a number of things. I still hear about a, a WikiLeaks cable. I didn't even, you know, WikiLeaks, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> but we had done a kind of an actuarial study of Kuwait back when I was there that said essentially that given the drop in oil prices, the increase in demographic size, and the increase in health issues related to obesity, many of them diabetes and heart conditions, and the fact that it's a social welfare state mm-hmm. that pays for all of the medical treatment for its nationals, that unless Kuwait were able to attract foreign direct investment or other sources of income outside of petroleum or or make its investments more productive, that by 2020, they would not have more than like the equivalent of a 401k for their citizens, and they wouldn't be able to sustain this kind of largesse, national largesse. Of course, that was interpreted by the Islamists, too, as... Mm. Ambassador Jones predicts Kuwait will disappear by 2020. <laughs> wow. So that's fed into all of these, you know, because the U.S. is all powerful and does this. And I cannot tell you how many times I have had to explain to people mm. what that cable was about. I said, please go to WikiLeaks and read the original cable. You know, don't wow. listen to poor interpretations from other people. And, and finally, that was personally attributed to and you. And it was personally attributed to me that it was a kind of a, you know, terrible prediction for them. And in fact, just this year, a scholar finally actually dug up the original WikiLeaks and went out and said to people, no, this is this is what the cable actually said. But in a small community like that, it makes a, makes a difference. Definitely. You know, those things and people watch everything you say or do. People were angry when we left Libya without telling the government mm-hmm. in advance. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really felt abandoned. And in fact, one minister said to me, you, you valued your staff's lives more than Libyans. Wow. I, I said, you're right. So that's my first job as an American yeah, ambassador right. is to protect the lives of my of Americans mm-hmm. and my staff mm-hmm. there. You know, you develop a tough skin, you develop a thick skin because mm-hmm. there's you're always going to be criticized and people will push back. And, right. And they're clever too. I mean, we pushed some of this, it gets into confidential exchanges, but let me put it this way. We, we pushed the Kuwaitis hard on um, money laundering or on tracking funds mm-hmm. that we thought were going through. And one of their senior officials listened to all of this very patiently. We had treasury officials there and stuff. And then he turned around and he said, oh, by the way, tell me, how much of uh, Bernie Madoff's uh, funds have you recovered? And his point was very clear. Wow. And when we left, I said to the, my colleagues, I said, did you, did you hear his message? Mm-hmm. This all took place in the United States and we can't track it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're asking them to track money that's going elsewhere. So it's always, a, it's always interesting. <laughs> it's never boring. It's never dull, but I but I found that respectful exchanges that it all everything revolved around the way you approached them. Whether you were being a, especially as a woman, you want to avoid being quote unquote school marmish mm-hmm. and telling you know wagging the finger. The United States is is um, often accused of that, and kind of dealing with everyone else as though we were perfect. And I think mm-hmm. that's why there's a lot of schadenfreude right now with people saying, mm-hmm. see, you know, you have a lot of stuff to clean up yourselves mm-hmm. right now. On being a woman, I do want to ask you about, you know, you joined the department in 1982. Uh-huh. And I imagine a lot of these exchanges you're describing, you're probably one of the only, you know, few women in the room. And um, likely your Middle East counterparts, you know, as I've experienced throughout the Middle East, you're often, you don't see them across the table. Describe what that's like, you know, of female leadership in the department. Have you seen it change over these 30 Mm -hmm. years? Uh, What's, you know? Well, I mean, let's, let us not forget that, um, 
what, until 1977, I think, if you got married, you had to resign as an officer from the Foreign Service. So when I came in, of course, I was single then, but the Foreign Service had been pretty self-selective in some ways, too. And there are, I mean, look, to this day, there are positions in the Foreign Service that have been exclusively, almost exclusively encumbered by men. Hmm. We could name them probably Mm -hmm. easily, but on the whole, I have to say that... You know, I, I, yes, there was uh, sexism. I mm-hmm. mean, there were, it was, some of it was subtle. Some of it was unconscious, I think. And, and I'll give you an example. My second assignment in Baghdad, where ironically, actually, the, some of my counterparts of the foreign ministry were females, in fact, because mm. remember the Ba'athists were socialist and right. they had uh, empowered women in many roles, but not, not at the senior political roles. And I think this mm-hmm. is... You know, this is something that I think it's Mary Beard writes about in her Women's Manifesto, that Mm. that historically women have been given a voice, a public voice, when it deals with the treatment of other women and children. But when women veer into the broader political Mm -hmm. sphere, that's when the pushback comes. Mm. And it's I think it's probably still the case today, as we've seen. But in Baghdad, I had come in, I had replaced a guy who had curtailed, and I had been assigned to what we call the general services officer position in Baghdad, which meant that in this place that was during a war, an ongoing war, um, I was uh, in charge of leasing houses, finding properties Mm -hmm. for the embassy, and kind of dealing with the nuts and bolts of maintenance, running Mm -hmm. a maintenance crew and all of these guys. And and it was, you know, it was frustrating to say the least. It was humorously frustrating. (laughs) Um, You know, we would try to buy modern equipment for some of these guys, and they would prefer to use a palm frond to sweep the steps than a rake. And they were probably right. You know, who knows, than a broom. I mean, it worked just as well for them. But long story short, I had been there for about a year and a half or so, and and it was hard. It was, I I have to say, Baghdad was probably, after Tripoli, the most Mm. difficult post or the most challenging post for me at the time because I didn't speak Arabic. And, you know, I was a young officer still learning the ropes, and it was, there was a lot of scarcity there, and there were Scud missiles falling at some points. And and in those days, because our risk, there was a greater sense of a, a willingness to take risk, I guess. And I'll never forget this, our deputy chief of mission who was at the time deputy principal officer, Ted Katouf, called the department and he said, look, you know, other missions have pulled out. A lot of the airlines have shut down. Um, there are scuds falling. Um, do you think at least we could get a, an allowance, a hardship or a danger pay yeah. or something? Yeah. And the department, the fellow on the other end, who I will not name, but he was, in, he was the EX guy, the executive director for the bureau. He said, um, well, has anyone been hurt yet? Mm. And Ted said, no. He said, well, then carry on. And that, wow. and that used to be the ethos. I mm. mean, it's, in fact, I think we've lost the balance somewhere in between those two things. But in any case, you know, I did that job. It was tough. You know, all the time we had Iraqi, you know, Khabarat spying on us. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, there were robberies. There was this and that. My mother came to visit toward the end of my tour, and the ambassador, who was David Newton, who just passed away last year, I really admired him. He was a classic Foreign Service officer, really knew the region, very thoughtful person, and a lovely a lovely man, very erudite. But David told my mother, Ambassador Newton told my mother, he, and she told me this afterwards, she said, you know, the ambassador said to me, when Deborah first arrived, we didn't think she would make it, but she's going to be an ambassador someday. And she was so proud of this. And my face fell. Yeah. And she said, why? What's wrong? And I said, Mom, why did he think I wouldn't make it? Mm-hmm. 
because I was a girl, because I was short, because I was blonde. Mm. I don't know. You know, right. I couldn't figure out, you know, and it, and it really bothered me that there was always that expectation of failure. Mm. And I think that this is, if there's one thing I have seen throughout, a couple of things. It's one, and I, and I always tell my staff, ask yourself this question. Mm. When someone walks in the door and you see them for the first time, if they don't have a particularly identifiable name, you know, which many people do too. And I think we need to watch ourselves on how we treat that as well. But when someone first walks through the door, do you have an expectation of success? And you say to yourself, you know, I know this person's going to be great. And no matter what happens, I'm going to help them when they screw up, which we all inevitably do. You say, that's okay, move on. You you Mm -hmm. gave it your best shot. Mm -hmm. Or do you say, hmm, And you have an expectation of failure. So the person does 90% of their job well, but the minute that they screw up on something, you say, I knew that was going to happen. I knew eventually that was going to happen. And we all know what that feels like, expectation of failure. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we see is this kind of distinction between what criteria, I mean, when I was expecting my first child and I was was on a split tour for my husband, actually, he was in (laughs) Riyadh and I was in Syria. And it was after um, the invasion of Iraq, and we hadn't seen each other for a long time. And then I went in to see my deputy chief of mission, and I said, I'm going to curtail and go home and have the baby. And it was like, what? You know, why? And there was, I came under pressure to stay in in Syria and Damascus and have my first child. And, and And I finally had to push back and say, look, John, I was a staff assistant. I know what criteria men curtailed under better job, greater opportunity for me. I'm bored in this job. And people facilitated that. Mm -hmm. I said, please don't tell me that I can't curtail for the purpose of going home to have my baby Mm -hmm. and have my husband be with me when I have the baby. And Mm -hmm. I said, otherwise I'll just quit. And I really said that. I said, if you think that, that, you know, I'll quit then because that, those are my priorities. And it was something I shouldn't have had to say. And ironically, you know, there were females back in the department who did not support me, you know, or who were kind of, well, why don't you kind of tough it out? Because the idea was at the time you had to be the same. Well, I'm not the same. I was pregnant. Right. So those things happened. And I do think it's changed. I do think you have... We have seen more women in senior positions. I mean, and I always remember the words of our first female assistant secretary of state for the European Bureau, Mm. who said, I knew that I had been accepted when I did screw up. And the men said, that's okay. You gave it your best shot. Let's move on. But but on the whole, I have to say in in the whole Me Too moment and all this stuff, I can honestly say Yes, there was implicit, explicit, unconscious, conscious, who knows, stereotyping or some sexism and some things. But I never had an inappropriate approach by any one of my supervisors or colleagues. Members of Congress, yes. (laughs) Foreign businessmen, yes. You know, or foreign, you know, and foreign officials, yes. You know, there was a curiosity. I would often quip to people, I don't have anything to compare it to. So I don't know when people would ask me what it was like to be a woman in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I said, I have, I've only ever been a woman yeah. in the Middle East, so I have nothing to compare it to. However, I do think that whereas in the States we rely on laws to protect us, ergo I can walk half naked down the street, but if someone touches me, it's you know, and he shouldn't. I mean, but the point is I can say it's against the law or you don't do that. 
in the Middle East, in traditional cultures, it is our behaviors that protect us. I mean, as long as you stay within your role, you're an official, you're a mother, you're a wife, you're whatever, mm-hmm. you're a woman, you're a single woman, you behave, you know, you dress modestly and you and you act like you deserve respect. And, you know, I never had a problem with that because in part, too, I was representing the United States, not right. myself. And I never let that line drop. You know, I'm a toucher. I mean, I'm, but I wouldn't there. You know, you wait always for a man to extend his hand first. In one instance, someone told me that one of my interlocutors in the host government had commented on on my hair falling and how I would lift my hand and pull it aside out of my face and how it kind of intrigued him. And so from then on, I clipped my hair back before I would go to see him. I would just make sure that it was clipped there. I would always make sure my you know, legs were covered and right. things with the, with others who were who would express curiosity, and I think you know part of that is we're all curious about what we don't normally see. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have to say, in fairness, that you know, in the Middle East, men are covered too in the region, in the Gulf. You know, they wear hutra and they their hair is covered and they're they wear long sleeves and. You know, when a guy removes his hutra, you stare, you know, or when he pulls up his sleeve, you look because this is human nature, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, you know, suddenly that full head of hair becomes very interesting to you (laughs) in a way that, you know, it's not here. Um, So I don't know. You know, I think a lot of times it's all in how you conduct yourself Mm -hmm. and um, people usually respond to that if you are an honorable daughter, wife, yeah. or whatever. I mean, within you know, your women don't like that, but within the context, because that is the, that is the reality. Mm-hmm. Social norms protect you as opposed to laws. Mm-hmm. Protect or, you know, some people would say, oh, that, it, yeah, I mean, you're a U.S. government representative. No one's mm-hmm. going to, unless you leave an opening for it. And mm-hmm. I always used to tell the, some of the younger people don't make the mistake of flirting with, because mm-hmm. then, then that's how they'll see you. Well, to wrap it up, let's bring it back to the university and the students. Yeah. Uh, we just met a few of them today who yeah. started on their very first day of their doctoral studies. God bless them. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, what what do you give to them? What what advice or guidance, you know, as they're starting yeah. right. graduate studies and how can they make it? It's an applied program. Right. But then, you know, how to make it practical, how to make it useful right. for them later in, in well, the, the good field. Thing, yeah, the good thing about a lot of these people, these folks, is that they do come already with background. They're not coming straight out of undergraduate right. degrees. or So it's not purely theoretical mm-hmm. for them. They've been out in the world. They know how it works. And, I, you know, I doubt that many of them are going to want to come into a kind of a foreign service situation, which is an apprenticeship profession. You're going to apprentice journeyman, you know, it takes a long time Mm -hmm. to reach a level where you're actually in any way, shape or form shaping policy as Mm -hmm. everyone wants to think they're doing. But I think for these folks, there are plenty, especially now, more than there ever were before, there are so many fields where because of international corporations, for example, Starbucks or places that operate all around the world, they need people who can advise them on the geopolitical system situation or security situation in those places, and someone who brings not only the practical but a kind of a, a more, I don't want to say academic per se, but the greater understanding and nuance of a region, mm-hmm. that's going to be a very marketable thing, I would mm-hmm. think, especially as competition in a global environment 
continues. I mean, because for all of the talk of protectionism and nationalism, the reality is people trade. People have always traded. When people can trade, they do. And so so you have those, that private sector capabilities. There's also advisory positions, obviously, for all of the still in the military world or the think tank world or places like RAND or others. I mean, there's so many opportunities in Washington to offer expertise with that. And I think, you know, for those who I, I would encourage people who, you know, want to, I mean, get into politics at some level too and apply it to that, to educating other people and to try to shape policy that way. I mean, politically, you know, shape, get it, get actually into the game. And, and uh, because these, again, these are people, they're kind of in their prime mm-hmm. professionally and, and, and age-wise. I mean, to ha- they still have that kind of energy and that kind of drive to get into the policy world or, what, or get into staffing for, a, you know, someone who's running for office to advise someone who's on the Hill. Mm-hmm. Senators always need regional experts. I think we're going to see a turnaround. Not, I'm not talking about political party. I'm just talking about age. You know, we have a lot of people who are going to be shifting seats at senior levels in government. And I think also for those who are coming from states who have a lot of trade overseas too, you can be a, a an advisor to someone in your local government. I mean, at the state level, I, I just think there are just so many more opportunities than there were when 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 I kind of fell into this career as a foreign service officer. So, yeah, I think it's as much as they want to make of it or not. There's going to be a lot of competition out there, I think. And and right now you have, obviously, a fairly unusual, an unusually large number of foreign service professionals who have retired or who have been retired. Right. Um, but, you know, in a few years that will change, too. <laughs> People <laughs> go away, the dinosaurs go off. And, you know, these guys are going to be well-positioned to as I say, to, to advise in the, in that kind of the community that sits outside the official community that, yes. that provides papers and, and thinking. And, but again, in, in private sector, in businesses and, you know, not only in government. Mm-hmm. So those are all great examples. Thank you. That's no, really I hope practical. They, and... I hope they take advantage. I hope you get to see them leading because they're leaders. I mean, mm-hmm. these are, you know, people who have been in leadership positions and who, I think want to make change, Mm -hmm. and that's good. Mm -hmm. Well, Ambassador Deborah Jones, thank you so much for being with us today and appreciate your insights. Oh, you're most welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. For more information about our university's doctoral programs, visit us at amuonline.com slash doctoral-degrees. AMU, American Military University.